You are listening to the Progress Your Health Podcast, Episode 20. Welcome to the Progress Your Health Podcast with your hosts, Dr. Robert Mackey and Dr. Valerie Davidson, a husband and wife team who specialize in bioidentical hormone replacement therapy and functional medicine. They're here to help you lose weight, balance hormones, and age gracefully. It's their mission to motivate, educate, and empower you to take your health to the next level. And now your hosts, hormone experts, Dr. Mackey and Dr. Davidson. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Progressive Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Mackey. And I'm Dr. Davidson. So in the last episode, we talked about thyroid testing or a thyroid function testing. We gave our very kind of simplified list of what we like to see on an ongoing basis. Today, we're going to expand that topic a little bit. We're going to talk about Hashimoto testing and kind of how it's different. There's quite a big difference, at least in treatment options, from differentiating from primary hypothyroidism to autoimmune-based hypothyroid, wouldn't you say? Yes, definitely. Actually, I have a lot of patients that come in and they're, they're hypothyroid. They might be on medication or they might be thinking they're hypothyroid or they've been on medication and it didn't work for them. And I'll always ask them, well, do you know if you have Hashimoto's? And I'd probably say, you know, eight times out of 10, they'll say, I don't know. You know, have you ever been tested? Well, I don't know. And not that it's, you know, a huge differentiation, but in technically, you know, truly in treatment, we treat Hashimoto's differently from generalized primary hypothyroid. So I do think it's important. And I have found also with a lot of those patients that their doctor will automatically just sort of tell them they have Hashimoto's if they have hypothyroid. It's almost like, which is kind of maybe a little bit different now, but in the last maybe three or four years. But prior to that, most doctors pretty much put hypothyroid and Hashimoto's together. Yeah, right. I don't think they even bother to differentiate or bother testing to see if they had Hashimoto's because it wouldn't change their treatment options. We'll talk about a medication, thyroid medication on the next one. So we'll kind of explain that a little bit more. But if you're going to give them basically one of three or four different medications, what difference does it make if they have antibodies or not? Where we definitely want to know because it brings in that whole, you know, no pun intended, that holistic approach idea where you're looking at liver function, you're looking at stress level, you're looking at gut biome, you're looking at gut function, you're looking at all these different things that can contribute to developing Hashimoto's in the first place. And of course, as we've talked about before, the conventional approach is really not, they're not looking at it that in depth. They're just giving a medication and off you go. And honestly, hypothyroidism is one aspect of Hashimoto's. So yes, inevitably Hashimoto's disease, Hashimoto's thyroiditis will eventually turn into a low thyroid, a low functioning thyroid. And that's not because your thyroid is just working low. It's because your immune system is attacking the thyroid because Hashimoto's is technically an autoimmune disease. Yeah, right. And that's the key distinction to make. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of information about Hashimoto's now. So I don't know if that's as much of a surprise or a secret as it used to be. Like you said, even in the last three to five years, I mean, everyone is kind of on the radar of Hashimoto's. Statistically speaking, if you have hypothyroid and you haven't been told whether you have 
Hashimoto's or not, 70% approximately, some say it's even more than that, but let's say 70% of hypothyroid cases are Hashimoto's type. So that means the majority of the cases out there, and I think there's like 30 million cases of people that are hypothyroid, 70% of those are Hashimoto's. So we're talking a really large number of people. And maybe this is why we're also talking about this because the people that are out there that are having, that maybe have Hashimoto's and medication approach only isn't working for them, maybe that's why they're not improving. They're not making any progress. They're not feeling any better because it's a medication only approach. And then finding out if you do have Hashimoto's, like you had said, they pretty much, you know, grouped Hashimoto's and hypothyroid as one thing. Sure, there are a lot of Hashimoto's cases when it comes to hypothyroid, but I do think differentiating is important. And honestly, it's very easy to do. Yeah, right. And we're going to talk more about Hashimoto's kind of like the, you know, without getting too nerdy, but we're going to talk more about the pathophysiology of it later. But honestly, the things I just mentioned, there's a lot of contributing factors to any autoimmune disease, let alone Hashimoto's, lifestyle, stress level, sleep, a genetic predisposition. I know you and I were planning this episode and you, I asked you, where do you think Hashimoto's come from? And you, in the first thing you said was genetics. And I definitely think that there's a, sometimes a lineage throughout the family, grandmother, mother, daughter, you know, something like that, where the predisposition for Hashimoto's does kind of get passed along. Now, does it mean that it's automatically hereditary? No, I think that we're learning more about genetics. We'll talk more about that later on as well. But certainly whatever you get from mom and dad, it gives you, you know, in some ways, like I said, that predisposition for something to develop. You know, it doesn't mean that it will, you know, your lifestyle might be different than mom and dad's was, your environment might be different than mom and dad's, but the conditions could be right for something to show up. Yeah, you might have a predisposition toward it. We all have kind of our Achilles heel in what we've, you know, gotten in our genetic baggage from our family. So I do feel like there's a component to that. There's a lot of other theories as well, which like Dr. Mackey said, we can definitely get into all that pathophysiology. But usually if there's a, a patient that comes in and they've got Hashimoto's, you know, I ask them about their siblings, you know, have they been tested? You know, you got some kiddos, maybe they're too young right now. Well, we don't want to torture them with a blood test. But at some point, if you know you have a patient that has Hashimoto's, we want to kind of maybe look at the other family members if they're open to it or definitely their children. They're always, especially teenage girls, because our hormones as females. And if you look at Hashimoto's, probably the majority, you definitely see more of a female bent towards the Hashimoto's than males, which definitely has, you know, the hormones have some sort of aspect to it. So definitely with a patient that comes in that has Hashimoto's, at some point we'll check their kiddos. Yeah, sure. Yeah. You know, I hear it from patients all the time and I know you do as well. And they'll always say, well, my mom had a thyroid problem or grandma had a thyroid problem because it just seems like it. And that's why they're suspecting that they have one or not. And that's why they get frustrated when they go to their doctor and their doctor only does a TSH and they say, oh, you're fine and kind of blow them off. But they just know that that's not quite the full story. So this is where we would expand upon that a little bit. And like I said, identifying to see if those Hashimoto's or antibodies are there. We'll get into what those are in a second. A lot of you listening might actually be aware of them already or I've already had them tested, which again is becoming much more commonplace. Doctors are running them. A lot of times they don't really know what to do with them. An endocrinologist isn't going to really, it's not really going to make a difference because he's still going to give you the same medication regardless. They kind of, you know, in some ways they kind of just blow it off. So why don't you run through the main things that differentiate or diagnose, if you want to call it that, that diagnose Hashimoto's. So there's two antibodies with Hashimoto's. There's the thyroid peroxidase antibody 
also abbreviated a lot of times to TPO. And then there's the thyroglobulin antibody or abbreviated to TG antibody. Most commonly with Hashimoto's and doctors that do test it end up only doing the TPO or the thyroid peroxidase antibody because about 80% of Hashimoto's patients are usually TPO only positive, but it is important to check that thyroglobulin antibody as well. Now, just on a quick little side note, the thyroglobulin antibody is different from the thyroglobulin total. So if somebody has had thyroid cancer in the past and they remove their thyroid gland, they screen them for the thyroglobulin only, because if that thyroid gland happens to grow back, that thyroglobulin will show up. So that's why it's important to do for Hashimoto's to do the thyroglobulin antibody. So I've had people go and they come back and they got their thyroglobulin tested and I'm like, well, that doesn't tell us anything. Of course, it's gonna be positive because you have a thyroid, you haven't had thyroid cancer. So the two antibodies are the thyroid peroxidase antibody and the thyroglobulin antibody. Like I said, with the thyroid peroxidase antibody, about 80% of Hashimoto's patients are positive for that. And then there's a smaller percentage, about you know 10 to 15% that have the thyroglobulin and the thyroid peroxidase antibody positive, and then there's a really small percentage of the thyroglobulin only positive. But I still think it's important to differentiate because I do find a lot of people come in and they say, no, they don't have Hashimoto's because their TPO is negative. And then I say, you know what? Next time we, you know, you get your arm out and we're gonna do a blood test, let's do that thyroglobulin antibody. And sure enough, it comes back positive because like Dr. Mackey had mentioned, is sometimes just approaching the thyroid in a hypothyroid case isn't what you need to do in somebody that's a Hashimoto's case. Right. Yeah. Now an interesting little tidbit or a little wrinkle to that. And I had this actually this past week, I had a patient, she'd been a patient for a couple of years. She originally came in with the TSH elevated, like 14, 10, something like that. Uh, put her on a little bit of medication to begin with, and she didn't really do very well on it. Wanted to go off the medication. And here she is, you know, six to eight months post-medication. And now her thyroid numbers actually look like she's hyperthyroid. So one of the things that you and I discussed about that, so, but the interesting thing is that both of her antibodies, at least before, about four months ago, the two antibodies that you're talking about, her anti-TPO and her anti-thyroglobin were both normal. So we decided for her, we're gonna run what they call a TSI, which is a thyroid stimulating immunoglobulin which in our rationale is a way to differentiate between Hashimoto's and someone that might actually have either Graves' disease, which is hyperthyroid, or just hyperthyroid. Because in Hashimoto's, a lot of times, especially in the early stage, it can represent or it can manifest like it is hyperthyroid. So by doing all three of those in that early stage, you can kind of differentiate. Is this legitimately Graves' and hyperthyroid only, or is this Hashimoto's, and is it going to wax and wane for a while? And I don't know how many times I've seen it. I know you've seen it a bunch where they're in that early stage Hashimoto's and the first thing the endocrinologist wants to do is radioactively ablate their thyroid, which in some cases, if it's bad enough, is not a bad thing. Sometimes that may be the only option, but I think they're a little bit too quick to jump to that. They go down that path a little bit too quickly. So the three that, depending on the situation, if you're just looking for Hashimoto's in general, more on the hypothyroid side, as you said, the anti-TPO, anti-thyroglobulin. If you're kind of on the hyper side and you're trying to differentiate adding in that TSI, which I've never, have you ever seen an endocrinologist run a TSI? Occasionally, but usually I think that's you know, when we're kind of working in tandem, I think. But I think like we had talked about in our previous podcast, you know, these 
you got to love these doctors. I mean, bless them. They want to save your life. They are looking at the black and the white. Your thyroid is too high. We need to bring it down, whether it's by doing the radioactive iodine uptake or doing some medication, because there are medications to reduce a hyperthyroid. That's what they want to do in that instant. You know, we're looking at it in a little bit different. Of course, we want to bring down that thyroid, but we want to find out, well, what is the course or the prognosis of this? Because with Hashimoto's, inevitably, it's going to lead to a low thyroid. Now there's, you know, later on, we're going to talk a little bit more about how you can kind of avoid Hashimoto's if you catch it early or what you can do as a treatment plan, you know, cause we have lots of different treatment plans and working on that, but it is true. I mean, or sometimes, you know, I've had maybe not as recently, but you know what, now it's even becoming more common too, is I'll actually just remove the thyroid, you know, like, Hey, let's just take it out. Or I have lots of patients that have been coming into me maybe in the last three years that have part of their thyroid removed. And of course they inevitably become, you know, low thyroid, but it really was because of Hashimoto's that they removed part of the thyroid to try to kind of calm it. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, there's a time and a place for everything, but some of those options are a little bit too drastic too soon. Now, certainly differentiating between hyper and hypo, that's not really the discussion we're talking about, but because we're talking about Hashimoto's, especially in the early stages in the first, you know, two months to two years, right? In the early stage of Hashimoto's, it can have that hyper component. And I don't have a statistic or I don't really have a percentage, but I'd say the majority of the time that is still Hashimoto's and probably does not require one of those more invasive procedures to be done, but it does make them uncomfortable, right? It does make them very uncomfortable because you can have eye involvement. You can have cardiac involvement. It can be potentially fatal if it's severe enough. No one dies of hypothyroid. Hypothyroid is not really necessarily that severe or serious. It can certainly have an impact on quality of life and cause lots of symptoms but it's not nearly as dangerous as a hyperthyroid situation. So it, it definitely gets everybody's attention and they don't want to wait too long. And, you know, honestly, if the medications don't work very well, which there's very limited options for hyperthyroid, then their only options is to do some kind of a procedure at that point. Yeah. So let's say you're hypothyroid, you're on medication and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, it does run in my family or there's a few people in my family, maybe my sister, my grandmother or my mother, my aunt has hypothyroid also and they're on medication, but I don't know if I'm Hashimoto's or not. So the simple thing to do would be to do just a thyroid peroxidase antibody and a thyroid globulin and that would tell you or let's say you already know you have Hashimoto's and you have a, you know, a sibling or a child that you're curious about because they might start to have those same symptoms that you recognize in retrospect. In hindsight, you think, oh, I had those symptoms when I was you know, a teenager or in my 20s, but of course it didn't get caught till I was in my 30s and 40s. Then you would simply do a TPO, a thyroglobulin antibody, and that, like I said, the TPO, the thyroid peroxidase. So that would be kind of the nitty gritty, like we did on, this, on the previous podcast. What is the nitty gritty? for the thyroid function, the free T4, the free T3, and the TSH, with the free T4 and the free T3 being probably the most important, I would say, in my opinion. So if you wanted the nitty-gritty for do I have Hashimoto's or do I not, it would be that thyroid peroxidase and that thyroid globulin antibody. Right, right, right. And then the key to that, to one identifying, establishing a baseline, are those antibodies just slightly elevated? Maybe it's in an early stage. Are they really elevated? If they're really high, sometimes you'll see in the lab test, at least for the anti-TPO, it'll say greater than a thousand, meaning that it's like off the chart. And that what that usually tells you is the level of 
that immune response that's literally it's your immune system attacking the receptors on the surface of your thyroid gland which creates kind of a inflammation so to speak and it's that inflammation it's the attacking of the receptors that decreases function over time so if you can decrease that inflammation that's why they call it Hashimoto's thyroiditis the itis is the ending of any word. When you say the itis there, that usually means inflammation of some sort. That's what we're trying to do in Hashimoto's is we're trying to manage and reduce that inflammation. If you're successful in that, you're going to have a, you're going to stop the progression of it. And, you know, hopefully there's a return to function at that point. There's going to be an improvement to the symptom picture, whatever that patient may be going through. Yes, you're definitely dealing with the patient as an individual, but I do like the data. If we have a thyroid peroxidase antibody at 900 and over the next 12 to 16 months, we see that come down 600, 550, 420, you know, 130. I've had some people, we over the years, we've been able to get that thyroid peroxidase down to less than 34, where on some reference ranges, it looks like they don't even have Hashimoto's, even though we know that they do, but it doesn't show up on paper. Now, Dr. Mackey had mentioned about the inflammation of the thyroid. That is common. People with the thyroiditis, it might not quite be hypothyroid yet, but you can look at their throats and see if their thyroid looks a little enlarged. Of course, an ultrasound, doing a thyroid ultrasound is a great way to see if somebody has an enlarged thyroid, but it's not a way to differentiate Hashimoto's because I've had patients come in and they would say that their endocrinologist did an ultrasound on them and their thyroid is inflamed or it might have some nodules, more, you know, plural. They might have some cysts. It might show some lymph nodes. And then they'll say, well, you have Hashimoto's. Truly, a lot of us have nodules on our thyroid and or we might be hypothyroid and that thyroid's a little enlarged. It doesn't mean that we have Hashimoto's. So truly, I mean, I do think Looking at an ultrasound is important, you know, every six months to a year to sometimes if someone's stable longer than that. But if you want to find out if you've got that Hashimoto's is looking at those antibodies. Right, right. Now you brought up the ultrasound, you brought up thyroid nodules. We probably should do a whole separate episode on thyroid nodules. If you have Hashimoto's and you know you have Hashimoto's, nodules are kind of par for the course, right? As I just said, you have this inflammatory, this immune response on the surface of the gland. It's not surprising to see some type of nodule on the multiple nodules on the surface of the thyroid. Nodules do not mean cancer. Nodules do not mean cancer. As you just said, Dr. Davidson, that nodules are normal in about 10 to 15% of the population. And maybe even some of that 10 to 15% that they're normal, those people probably have Hashimoto's and don't even realize it yet. So they monitor, they want to do an ultrasound every three months, every six months, you know, twice a year, once a year to monitor the nodules with this kind of undertone that it could be cancer. Nodules don't mean cancer. Especially, it's it's actually better to have multiple nodules than just one nodule. One nodule is not as good of a prognosis as it is to have multiple nodules. So I think there's a little bit of over overreaction sometimes to the whole nodule thing. If you know you have Hashimoto's and you've had these antibody tested, that's why you have the nodules kind of in some ways case closed. Let's move on to something else. Let's not fixate and let's not worry about those nodules too much because, you know, they're going to be there anyways because of that immune response. Now, a lot of our patients are very savvy. You know, a lot of our listeners are extremely savvy with Hashimoto's and hypothyroid. So they're probably saying, well, with Hashimoto's, why would you just do a thyroid peroxidase antibody, a thyroglobulin, a TSH, a free T4, and a free T3. There's so many other tests to be tested with Hashimoto's. But yes, that's once you know that you have Hashimoto's because Hashimoto's is like 
like we said, it's going to inevitably cause some hypothyroid, some thyroid issues, but at the same time, it can create other cascades of inflammatory issues in the entire body. So yes, doing other tests, once you find out you have Hashimoto's would also be a good idea. Right, right. So one of them that I mentioned would be, depending on the situation, would be a TSI. That's kind of like for certain situations. I always like to, and we both do, like to run DHA sulfate. That gives us kind of a window into adrenal reserves, cortisol. A lot of times if your DHA is low, let's say less than 100, that means your cortisol output has been relatively pretty high for a long time. And on episode 15 of the podcast, you know, we talked about stress and the effect of stress on the body. We could easily say that Hashimoto's is one of those effects of stress on the body. We'll talk more about that when we get into the pathophysiology, but cortisol itself is very immune modulating and it kind of in some ways has a big role in how that immune system shifts from being kind of normal and balanced to being, you know, that autoimmune potential. We'll talk more about that later. Also, of course, just a CBC, what they call a complete blood count, looking at your white blood cells, your red blood cells. You usually don't see a lot uh, abnormalities on a CBC, but it may show some things. You may see changes to the white blood cells. That could be an effect of stress. You might see changes to the red blood cells, which could show some potential nutrient issues like maybe low iron. And then that brings us to another test. If you're going to look at that would be looking at ferritin levels because ferritin and Hashimoto's kind of seem to go hand in hand sometimes. Yeah, definitely the ferritin, even in men, you know, even in men, they usually people think, Hey, ladies are having periods. So they're going to be the ones with the anemia, but no, even fellas with Hashimoto's, you want to check out their ferritin. Definitely. And then also, of course, being male or being female, you want to look at the reproductive hormones too. So we would definitely do those reproductive hormones as well. And because of the effect of with Hashimoto's and it's inflammatory because it can cause a cascade of inflammatory reactions in the body. You want to definitely look at the inflammation like a CRP, a C-reactive protein, looking at cardiovascular inflammation, looking at a SED rate for overall inflammation, doing a cholesterol panel. So looking at your cholesterol, people with just even low thyroid tend to have high cholesterol. When someone's thyroid is balanced and it's working better, then their cholesterol actually goes down. So that's something that's definitely important. And then I know Dr. Mackey loves to do the fasting insulin. Well, you know, a lot of times, and we'll talk more about insulin testing later, but insulin can be a little bit ambiguous. Uh, you're really trying to see how high it is. The reference range for insulin is two to 19. It used to be two to 27, which is ridiculous, a very large range, but we want to see that number in an ideal world, less than five, less than seven would be okay. Less than 10 is acceptable. And once that fasting number gets above that, now you have to look at the insulin resistant or the insulin burden impact on thyroid function. And that's where the lipid panel comes in. Lipid panel is not really a screening for cardiovascular disease. In my opinion, lipid panel is a screening for what I would consider to be metabolic dysfunction, the pre-diabetic, the one that has that early stage insulin resistance. You're looking for a low HDL, you're looking for a high triglyceride, maybe an elevated total cholesterol. The things that are are concerning to doctors, but it's concerning to them for the wrong reason. All they want to do is give you a statin drug. Uh, we're looking at that to see, okay, the metabolic issues here, is the profile, is the cholesterol profile skewed in a negative way? And uh, we'll put that in the show notes and what that looks like. And I just kind of basically stated that. And then comparing that with a CMP, comprehensive metabolic panel, just to get a fasting glucose, 
Now, you and I are at a conference we're going to go that we go to actually every year in Las Vegas. Last year, we were at the conference and they were talking about a lot about fasting blood sugars and insulin and insulin resistance and all that. And they, they talk about that stuff on a regular basis in relationship to a lot of different things. And one of the presenters was talking about blood sugar, fasting blood sugars, anything greater than 84 on a fasting blood sugar, like has for as many points greater than 84, you have like in this exponential rise to developing diabetes and Alzheimer's and all these kind of crazy things. And honestly, I you know you and I look at fasting blood sugars all the time. And 84, you out of 100 people, you probably see one person that has a fasting blood sugar of 84. It is normal, not common. Okay? What you see that is common, not normal, is the blood sugars that are above 95. If your blood sugar is above 95 on a regular basis, you ha already have a problem. Okay? You already have a problem. If you're teetering over 100, you're 102, 103, 104, 105, 110, 115. In some ways, you could almost basically say that that person is already diabetic. Okay? So looking at that in relationship to hypothyroid in general, but certainly Hashimoto's has to be part of that diagnostic criteria. Yeah, so those are some of the basic lab testing, blood tests. Those are blood tests that we do for somebody that already has Hashimoto's. Now, those of you with Hashimoto's, because you're savvy, you know, good researchers, you're probably saying, well, there's so many other tests you can test too. But our first initial goal is definitely when we have somebody sitting in front of us is to get them feeling better, trying to get that inflammatory process down, trying to get them feeling better. Once they feel better, then they might decide, hey, I'm going to do a little walking. Hey, I'm going to eat a little bit better. We all know when we don't feel good, it's really hard to go to the grocery store and get vegetables and wash, chop and put them away and cook them and then clean it all up afterwards. When you're tired and you don't feel good, we all know that that's kind of a big thing to task to take on. So our goal is to get the patient to just feel good initially and then we get the ball rolling. And then we might end up looking into some other avenues such as genetic testing, other autoimmune testing for other autoimmune conditions, maybe an Epstein-Barr virus testing. So there's other things we'll test, but that's before... Because our whole goal is to not just throw everybody a bunch of things at everybody and then you run down the rabbit's hole with that. It's really to, you know, diagnose what's going on, what can we do to treat, what can we do to get you feeling better first, and then we run with it. Yeah, right. You know, keeping it somewhat you know, targeted and focused in the beginning and then kind of increasing complexity or having a little bit of a broader view later on if need be. But honestly, most people don't care as long as they start feeling better. That's really all that matters. And if their numbers are improving over a period of three, six, nine months, then what's the difference? Because that means you are doing something right because now those parameters that you've established as a baseline, those numbers are improving. The antibodies are going down, the fasting blood sugar, the fasting insulin is going down, the cholesterol numbers are improving, the CRP is going down, then you know that internally, metabolically speaking, that the immune system is changing, the metabolic pathways are changing, therefore that person's going to feel better. And sometimes it's just a matter of time, right? It's just a matter of following that plan for consistently over a period of time. Time is the great equalizer. That's usually the key that people just need to do what they're doing over a longer period of time and they'll see better results. Yeah, definitely. So we'll for sure, you know, get into actual Hashimoto's, the pathophysiology, some of the aspects, because it's not just about medication. There's lifestyle, there's dietary changes, there's supplementation, you know, like Dr. Mackey said, working on your liver, working on your gut, working on your immune system, working on anti-inflammatory. So there's so many things to get into. This was really to kind of give you a little 
kind of crash course on what we like to test and that you can actually do a simple blood test to find out if you have Hashimoto's or not. Yeah, so if you're looking for the actual list, you can visit the website, progressionhealth.com. You can find the actual blog post itself or show notes. There'll be a blog kind of corresponding to this. There'll be the show notes from the podcast itself as well. And if you have any questions, again, this is you know kind of podcast related. If you have any questions relating to anything that we've been talking about, you can send us an email at help at progressorhealth.com. Like I've said before on the other episodes, we might not be able to answer everyone directly, but if your question is good, not that all questions are not good, but if your question is intriguing enough and we think that it's worthwhile to answer that, we're either going to answer it directly on the podcast. It may be turned into a blog. It, there, there may be some way that your response will be will be shared so everyone can benefit from the answer. We do encourage that. We're going to you know, kind of think about how we can, you know, in some ways kind of systemize you know, the conversation back and forth. Certainly leaving a comment below on the blog or on the podcast would be in the show notes would be great. That would be another way for us to be able to answer those questions and for everyone to benefit. So Dr. Davidson, you have anything else to add? I think we, uh, I think we covered the Hashimoto's testing at least for now, huh? No, definitely. And if any, like Dr. Mackey said, if you have any questions, please reach out. All right. So uh, for another episode of the Progression Health Podcast, I'm Dr. Mackey. And I'm Dr. Davidson. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Progress Your Health podcast. If you like what you've heard on this podcast, please give us a positive review on iTunes. This allows us to spread our message, grow our audience, and help more people around the world. For more information, visit our website at progressyourhealth.com.